Psalm 92, and you will see that this psalm has a superscription which says a psalm, a song for the Sabbath day in the Hebrew text that actually constitutes verse 1, though it was probably a title that was added late in Israel's history. Psalm 92, it is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High, proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night to the music of the ten-string lyre and the melody of the harp. For you made me glad by your deeds, Lord. I will sing for joy what your hands have done. How great are your works, Lord. How profound your thoughts. Senseless people do not know, fools do not understand, that though the wicked spring up like grass and all evildoers flourish, They will be destroyed forever, but you, Lord, are forever exalted. For surely your enemies, Lord, surely your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. You've exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Fine oils have been poured on me. My eyes have seen the defeat of my adversaries. My ears have heard the rout of my wicked foes. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no wickedness in him. We're now going to turn to the New Testament to read as the text for the message this morning from the letter to the Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Let us hold, or sorry, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of the Lord. You don't go to church. You are the church. I wonder how many of you have heard that slogan before or have seen that on a social media meme. You don't go to church. You are the church. What do you think about that? Is that correct? Well, I think that we'd have to say that technically it's correct. The word church in the Bible doesn't refer to a building, but to the people of God. So technically it's correct. And yet I find it to be supremely unhelpful, if not dangerous, because of the implication. The implication seems to be that you don't need to go to church. You don't go to church, you are the church. And the interesting thing within evangelicalism today is that this implication that I've identified has become the conclusion that many people have reached. The best place to encounter God, people are saying today, is anywhere but the church. Some going even so far as to say it is a mistake 
to go to church. You don't go to church. You are the church. Going to the church building doesn't make you the church. The building itself has nothing to do with it. And you can be the church on Sunday morning by going with some Christian friends to Westtown Cafe, and you're doing church in the city of Hamilton Sunday morning in a way far better than those who are gathering in buildings. Should we ditch the slogan? Well, I'm not interested this morning in ditching the slogan, but I think it needs some nuance, and I think we can enhance it in a way that is helpful. What I'm going to propose is a little maybe too cumbersome for a social media meme, but here's what I would say. You don't go to church you are the church, but because you are the church, you gather as the church. How do you like that? A little too big for a social media meme? You don't go to church, you are the church, but because you are the church, you gather as the church. Now, this is very important. I indicated last time that many of us feel like failures as followers of Jesus because we're so distracted, so hurried, so scattered, so exhausted. And the problem, we said last time, isn't bad theology. It's not biblical illiteracy. The problem is that we're trying and not training. But God wants to train our hearts and minds and bodies and as we train our hearts and minds and bodies, we become stronger as disciples. We become more resilient. And so we need to reorder our lives through what I'm calling and what many other people have called a rule of life. We need a rule of life, a set of practices to reorder our lives around the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning... I'm going to unveil the very first practice which I hope you will find brilliant and stunning. So take out your pens or pencils to write this down. Practice number one, go to church weekly. What a revelation. What a brilliant pastor we have. Go to church weekly. We're going to see in the time that we have together this morning reasons why you shouldn't go to church and reasons why you should go to church. Go to church weekly, but go to church weekly for the right reasons, and I'm afraid that some at least go to church for the wrong reasons, and I want to identify some of those with you this morning. First of all, we don't gather together in church to guarantee God's love for us. We don't gather in church to guarantee God's love for us because God's love can't be earned by our behavior. And if you're going to church to earn God's love, you're sinning. This is not the way we obtain God's love. This is not the way that we are accepted by God. We are loved by God and we are accepted by him because of the work that Jesus did, his life, death, and resurrection. And yet you know that for many in the past, church attendance was seen as a mark of a mature Christian. 
if you saw someone that was diligent in going to church every week, you would suspect that that individual was a mature Christian, and yet there were many people going to church from week to week to atone for their sins. They knew they were messing up in life, saying things, doing things they shouldn't be saying and doing, and they thought, well, if I just go to church, God will be happy with me. God will accept me. God will forgive me. No, we are accepted. We are forgiven because of Jesus and not by going to church. Second, we don't gather because it's the most important thing in life. It's not the most important thing in life. And again, previous generations were so insistent upon church attendance that this this was the implication that many drew. When I pastored in Kansas City, Missouri, I had a parishioner who was elderly in her late 80s. Her eyesight was poor, and she drove a very big Lincoln, one of those old-style big Lincolns. And whenever there was bad weather, I was fearful for her safety and for the safety of everyone else on the road near her. And I said to her once, I said, Erica, there's a fine line between piety and stupidity, and I think you've crossed it. When the weather is bad, when the roads are slippery, stay home, don't go to church. But she had been raised in a culture which said to her, church is the most important thing that you do. I've pastored many people who are largely immobile and unable to come to church. And when I visited them, they've apologized to me. I'm so sorry I'm not in church. You don't need to be sorry if you are frail or if you have a weak immunity. Now, many people have appealed to this text from Hebrews 10 during the pandemic to say that we need to defy public health orders forbidding us in-person worship and we need to go ahead and worship in any case. Please show me where in this text we are forbidden to suspend worship services for the good of the community. I don't see it in this text. In fact, we at Blessings, for the duration of our existence, have, in every year, just about suspended worship services if the weather was bad, if there was ice on the roads, if there was snow. We did not regard church attendance as the most important thing, and there were times where we said, no church, stay at home, we're going to do this differently. In forbidding in-person worship, you see, the government uh, wasn't uh, banning worship Uh, The government wasn't trying to destroy Christianity any more than it was trying to destroy restaurants. And if the government ever does ban worship, you're all welcome to 123 Stanley Avenue. Don't all come at once, but I'll be the first to open my house the moment the government bans worship and says you may not do it. I'll be the first to defy the government and say we will. So we don't gather uh, because it guarantees God's love. We don't gather because it's the most important thing to do. We don't gather thirdly because it's the only way to meet Jesus. 
It's not the only way to meet Jesus. You can meet Jesus almost anywhere. You can meet Jesus in nature. You can meet Jesus in the classroom. You can meet uh, Jesus in a dream. The Apostle Paul first met Jesus on a dusty road. Many Muslims today are encountering Jesus in a dream. It's also not the only way you can meet with the saints. There are times, as I indicated, where you, because of your condition, cannot go out and meet with others. And the Apostle Paul found himself in exactly that predicament, and he says something in that connection which I believe is very helpful for those who, because of weak immunity or because of uh, frail bodies, cannot join with others. He says to the Colossians, he says something similar to the Corinthians, he says, even though I am absent in body, I am present with you in spirit. And Bible scholars point out that when Paul says that, he's not just simply saying, you're in my thoughts and my prayers. It's rather that the Holy Spirit has joined Paul and the Colossians in Christ so that even though they are absent from each other in body, they are present with each other in spirit. Fourthly, we do not gather to feel better. This is a mistake I see a lot of uh, believers making today. They see their relationship with God as a kind of pathway to feeling better. They rely on God for a change in emotion. They rely on God to transform their emotions from, let's say, negative emotions like fear and anxiety to more positive emotions like serenity or joy. This misunderstands the gospel. The point of the gospel is not to make you feel better. The point of the gospel is to confront you with the Lord Jesus Christ. And depending on what you're doing in your life, you may feel offended by the gospel. You may be disappointed by the gospel. So we need to be careful about this, even in terms of our worship music and the songs that we sing. I had an email exchange a while back with Brian Dirksen. I don't know how many of you know him. He's probably Canada's most famous contemporary worship songwriter. He has composed and written phenomenal songs, some of which we sing in blessings. And my question for him is, why is it that contemporary uh, worship artists today produce almost exclusively upbeat songs, unlike the songs that the church has sung throughout history, which often represented a range of emotions, some of which were somber and melancholic. And here's what he told me. He said, I, and just about every contemporary worship artist I know, composes and writes somber songs. Songs of lament, songs that accent that the Christian life is sometimes a life of tears, that the Christian life is sometimes a life of challenge and difficulty. He says the problem is churches never pick them to sing. There's a wide repertoire of songs like that, but they're never chosen. Now, this speaks to the consumerism of the church, to which we can all fall prey, to which I can fall prey, and you can fall prey. It's reflected even in the language of church shopping. 
Why do you go to church? Which church do you go to? Well, I go to this, this church because I get something out of it. And often what people want is what Kyle Bennett identifies as spiritual heroin, which reminds me of something the late Clark Pinnock said, who taught for years at McMaster Divinity. He said, if you want an experience in worship, put a little LSD in the communion wine, if that's the objective. But it's not the objective, so we don't go to church to earn God's love. We don't go to church because it's the most important thing to do. We don't go to church because it's the only place to meet Jesus. And we don't go to church to feel better. Well, if you're now wondering why we go to church, then that's exactly the question I want you to be asking. And it's exactly the question I want to answer uh, from this text. And I'm going to identify in our remaining time three reasons why we gather for worship. One, we gather to preview the day of judgment. This sermon's only getting more depressing for you now. We gather to preview the day of judgment. The writer says, don't neglect meeting together, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. What day? The day of Christ's return, the day of judgment. Now, for the Hebrews to whom this letter was first addressed, that day meant especially the day when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed. Jesus had warned in Matthew 24 of that day when his judgment would fall on Jerusalem. That fall of Jerusalem occurred within years of uh, this letter being written and received, and the destruction of Jerusalem was a return of the Lord in judgment, and it was a harbinger of the final day of judgment. See, in the Bible, Sunday is the Lord's day. And it's the Lord's day because it's the day of the Lord's resurrection, the day when Jesus rose from the dead, the first day of the week. But what you may not know is that the Lord's day and the day of the Lord are identical in Greek. When you come across the phrase, you have to ask yourself, how do I translate this? Day of the Lord or the Lord's day? They are identical, and they are deliberately identical because the Lord's day is the day of the Lord in miniature. It is the day of the week when the Lord visits us. And when the Lord visits you and when he visits me, we need to be careful. Why? Because God is a consuming fire. Chapter 12, worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Be attentive to the voice of Jesus. Do not neglect that voice. Every Lord's Day is the day of the Lord in miniature, and we're reminded of the ultimate day, the day when the Lord will visit us, and with every passing Sunday, we are closer to the ultimate day of the Lord when he will visit us his people. So, um, don't neglect assembling together all the more as you say, see the day approaching. Well, isn't that scary? Isn't that frightening? Yeah, it's a little bit scary. It's a little bit frightening. 
to think that the Lord visits with us and that there's going to be a climactic visitation from the Lord. But there's another reason why we gather for worship, and that is to enjoy a foretaste of heaven. We are constantly reminded throughout the letter of the Hebrews to draw near to God and not to shrink back, not to drift away. You find those exhortations all over the letter. Draw near to God, don't shrink back. But what you may not know is that this language of drawing near was used throughout the Old Testament to denote that special privilege that priests had and not non-priests to approach God, to go into the temple, to get close to God. And now the writer of the Hebrews is saying, draw near, don't shrink back. And the writer indicates in the verses preceding our text that we can now draw near because our hearts have been sprinkled and our guilty conscience is cleansed and our bodies have been washed. This is terminology that's lifted from Leviticus 8 where we have described the ordination ceremony of the priests. When the priests were consecrated for service, when they were ordained, they were sprinkled with blood and their bodies were washed with water, which is to say that we are all priests today. And what marks our consecration as priests is baptism. This is an insight of my friend Peter Lightheart, that baptism today corresponds to a number of Old Testament ceremonies, one of which is the ordination of priests. Little Reed this morning was ordained as a priest. He has access to the Father. He is summoned to present himself as a living sacrifice of gratitude. He has been given priestly garments. They are oversized. But we pray that he grows into those priestly garments and owns his identity and calling to be a priest in the world. Jesus offered the perfect sacrifice on the cross, and in so doing, he gave us a privilege no Old Testament saint had, namely a passport into God's presence. But the fact is, we don't fully enter into God's presence until we die or when Jesus returns, but in our worship, we get a foretaste of heaven, a foretaste of the presence of God. That's why we say at the beginning of our worship, this old tradition, the Sursum Corda, lift up your hearts. We lift them up to God because we are entering heaven. Listen to what the writer of the Hebrews says, chapter 12. Speaking of corporate worship, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. If you had the opportunity to meet with Jesus, would you take it? And what the writer to the Hebrews is saying is, Jesus promises to meet you here in worship. You can meet him outside of worship. You can meet him all over the place. This is the place where he 
promises to meet you. And when you gather and worship, there's a sense in which you enter heaven itself, you get a foretaste of heaven, and you hear the very voice of Jesus in the preaching of the gospel. Do not neglect that voice. So, we gather to preview the day of judgment, to enjoy a foretaste of heaven. Thirdly, finally, to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. This is how the text begins. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. How do we do that? Negatively, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. Positively, by encouraging one another. What do you call church absenteeism? A bad habit. That's what the writer is saying. You're not missing out. You're not simply missing out on the opportunity to meet with Jesus at the time and the place where he promises his special presence. You're actually discouraging other brothers and sisters. Because by gathering together, we spur one another on to love and good deeds. We are encouraged, in other words, by seeing the perseverance of others. Imagine how important this is, especially in a time of persecution, which was the context for the Hebrews. When they saw their brothers and sisters persevering in the time of persecution and hostility, they were encouraged as well. Why were the Hebrews not meeting? Why were there some so early on in the church's history giving up the habit of meeting together? Well, we don't really know, but probably persecution, perhaps shame, perhaps business engagements, perhaps friendships, perhaps for social reasons, perhaps indifference or apathy. When you don't show up for church, you have the potential, the writer says, to discourage your brothers and your sisters. And your brothers and your sisters might say, if he doesn't show up, why should I show up? If it's possible for him to be a good Christian and not be here, maybe it's possible for me not to show up and be a good believer. It reminds me of this line from one of John Donne's poems, a very famous English poet. He says, each member's defection discourages me. Each member's defection discourages me. So the writer here is saying, don't divest, but invest. Don't withdraw, but engage. Don't give up the habit, but encourage one another. You don't go to church, you are the church. It's true. But more needs to be said. Because you are the church, gather as the church. Not to guarantee God's love. Not because it's the most important thing to do. Not because it's the only place to meet Jesus. Not because it's going to make you feel better but rather, don't give up the habit. Keep going to church. Why? Because it's a preview of the day of judgment, the Lord's day, when the, when the Lord in his holiness as a consuming fire 
visits his people. It's a foretaste of heaven. We are brought to Mount Zion and the heavenly Jerusalem and the great judge seated on high and thousands upon thousands of angels in assembly and to Jesus, the perfect mediator, brought into the courts of heaven itself to hear the voice of Jesus. And thirdly, we gather to spur one another on to love and good deeds. So in this very frantic world, where we're so distracted and so scattered and so discouraged and so exhausted, we need a rule of life, a set of practices to reorder our lives around Jesus. It's not going to be an overwhelming rule. And these aren't going to be an overwhelming set of practices. Practice number one, go to church weekly. Let's pray together. Our dear Lord, we thank you that when you bring us to yourself, you bring us to others. And that we really don't have in Scripture indications of you doing something in somebody's life, somebody's life independently of others. Help us to see that to be a believer is to be tied to others. And that we can learn from others and that others can learn from us. Help us to establish this as a practice in our lives, to be committed to weekly worship if we are able. And if we are not able, not to feel guilty about it, but to understand that there is a way for us to be present in spirit, though absent in body. Lord, we yearn for strength and resiliency far more than we yearn for joy and happiness and serenity, we yearn for strength to follow Jesus faithfully in this complex and challenging world. To that end, bless us, strengthen us, equip us, motivate us by your Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name.